Hey everyone, on this week's episode, we have a special guest, Rebecca from OnlyBlackGirl.com, um, and she also has Only Black Girl as all of her social handles. She's originally from Washington, not Washington, D.C., but the state, one of the whitest places in the West, and she's a writer and activist and consultant. She talks about what it's like to be the only black girl in her family, uh, in her community, in her area, in her school. And she talks about the unique challenges that black children raised by white families face. And she gives voice to adoptees. Um, and she really has a heart for educating uh, adoptive parents and educating service providers so that they can understand what they can do to support children of color that have been adopted into white families. So I think that this is super relevant and uh, really amazingly helpful information. I know that I had a bunch of questions for her, ones that probably were not well informed, and she answered them with grace. You guys are going to love her. And just for people who may have littles around, this is a real conversation with adults, so we do have some adult language. All right, guys, let's do this. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I found you online and I was just so inspired by your blog. And um, I think it's really interesting to get the perspective of what it's like to be the only black girl adopted into a white family. Mm -hmm. Um, I know personally, I was a social worker in Vermont, which is super white. And we did have, I did have, you know, black kids on my caseload, but they were raised by white family, only had white community members, white school and all of that. So it was interesting to work in culture and even like trying to find representation um, within like the tri-state area. So yeah. So I wanted to talk to you so that you can kind of give our listeners who, some of which are adoptive families, um, transracial adoptive families. So it can be really helpful. And then we also in our audience have program service providers. So okay. it will help service providers kind of give your perspective to the families that they work with. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how it was you came to be in, in your adoptive family? Yeah, so I um, was the first in my immediate family to be adopted. So I was adopted at birth. Um, so the whole thing was pretty much already arranged before I was born and then my um, adoptive mom came down to pick me up when I was three days old. So I've pretty much been in my adoptive family from jump. (laughs) Um, It was a closed adoption. Uh, There was a little bit of like letter writing communication between them, but that only happened for like the first year and then they kind of lost contact. So, um, so yeah, I was was, uh, raised in Olympia, Washington, Washington State, not DC. Um, So very, very white town, very like literally so white. 
And for the first half of my life, I was raised way out in the country on a farm. Um, so even more closed off <laughs> from society than I would be if I maybe lived in town. So we were pretty much pretty isolated to just the family. Um, and then we were homeschooled. So I didn't go to school until high school. So again, it was just basically my whole social life was basically just my family. So I didn't even meet another person of color until like middle schoolish. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I literally grew up um, thinking that I was like the only black person around because everywhere I went, church, and even just like out in the community, everywhere I was going, it was literally just me. Um, and it wasn't until I was like seven or eight that we adopted um, another black sibling. Um, so like that first like seven years of my life, I literally was like the only black person in my family and in town, like everywhere I was going. Wow. So when did you realize that or did you have conversations with your uh, adoptive family about, you know, you being black and what that meant and like, how did you make meaning of what that meant to be the only black girl? I have a very distinct memory of realizing that I was different. Um, and it was when I was playing, I was at my grandmother's house and I was playing with my cousins. And we do have other transracial adoptees like in our extended family. Mm -hmm. So we have some that are from um, like Taiwan um, and Ethiopia. Now we do, but like when I was growing up, I was the only black person. Um, so I stood out a lot. And I have this very distinct memory of just playing at my grandmother's house and then like just suddenly realizing that I'm the only person mm -hmm. that has skin like this and looks like this. And I remember going to my parents and asking why am I the only one who's different? Why, why do I have skin like this? Why is it different? And they told me um, that I was adopted and they told me my whole adoption story. And at the time I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like I just needed like, something that like answered the question of why I'm like the, the odd one out. Um, and it wasn't until later that um, I kind of started realizing that like race was a thing that people actually cared about in society. Um, and I think the first time that happened for me was I was in Goodwill with my mom shopping and this older white woman um, just was like walking by and she saw me and she was like, oh, it's been a long time since I've seen one of yours before. And she like just pointed at me. And it was really like, I was young enough to not really understand what she meant by that. But I also like, there was just something in me that was like, this is weird. Yeah, and that <laughs> like, was cool. does like, Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. There was just something about the way her tone and the wording that she used, like some of one of yours before, like it was just, I was just like, this something is not right. And from there, it just kind of, I like started realizing more and more little things like that, that would pop up, like just the way people would refer to me or even like little things like if I'm with my family somewhere, people wouldn't address me. Even if they were talking to me, they would talk to mm. one of my white family members, like just little things like that. It was just always since I just like started picking up on things that I was like people are like actually treating me differently because of the way that I look did you did you have conversations with your parents about race and about what that meant or about your experience I did initially but it didn't really go anywhere which is one of my biggest issues around the transracial adoption thing it was a lot of like oh, they're just from a different generation and they didn't, you know, they're from a different time or, oh, maybe they didn't really mean it like that or, oh, you know, you might be reading a little bit too much into it, like stuff. Anytime I would bring up things that like, this makes me feel uncomfortable. It was always a way to like 
kind of brush it aside instead of actually having a conversation about it. Like I remember um, in church, we used to, I grew up in like a Lutheran church. It was very, very white. <laughs> um, but I remember my mom would braid my hair and she would put like beads and stuff in it, which I loved. Um, but it attracted a bunch of like white women that would be like, literally like petting me, like I was yeah. a petting zoo. And I remember just being like, I don't like this. I feel very uncomfortable. And then it was always met with like this, oh, they're just admiring you, that kind of stuff. And it was just always, there's always just some way to like avoid having the actual conversation about race and racism. And do you think it's because they weren't equipped to have those conversations or they were trying to protect you? Or do you feel like it's just this general dismissiveness that we have as a society? I think a lot of it is just they didn't know how to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And also, I think a lot of it was also that um, they just, to them, it doesn't even register because of white privilege. To them, looking at it, it does look like oh, maybe she's just reading into things because they don't understand the things that we see and what we deal with. They don't understand like the connotations that come with the words and the actions that people um, have towards us. So I think a lot of it is just kind of, one, there's the avoidance of, well, I don't really know how to have this conversation, so I'm just not going to have it. And then two, it's just like, well, I don't really understand what you're going through. So is there really anything to have a conversation about or or is it always it's kind of like that gaslighting thing that yeah. women always get and I think black people most people of color always get this too where it's just like oh you're just reading into things you know they genuinely just like you or they genuinely just think you're beautiful or whatever it is like that and it's like no <laughs> no that's not the language that they used or the actions that they were using yeah yeah so um I I've all, you know, I've been hearing about how much, you know, representation matters and I've always been on, understood that concept. <clears throat> and I recently spoke to a white adoptive mom that happened to, she, she thought she was done adopting after she got her son from Ethiopia. She already had biological kids, whatever, but it was because she felt like representation mattered so much from what she was getting from her adopted son that she adopted another um, child, a daughter so that there could be representation literally within her family. So mm. did, did you feel like that was really helpful for you to have um, your brother that was adopted? Um, for me, no, because I don't know what it really was, but for me, like seeing black people in my family, it just didn't really register the same way as seeing um, black people outside of the family, if mm. that makes sense. Because <laughs> for us, especially, and it might have been because we were so isolated to just our family. For us, it was just like, this is like, this is just the family. And we're like, I always thought, I didn't even know that other people really adopted transracially. I thought we were just like the weird family the only <laughs> that had all these. Yeah, I thought we were like the weird family that had these black and Asian and white kids and we're just the weird people. <laughs> so, um, but for us, because we all grew up kind of in this same like, super white, super isolated. There wasn't like black culture to really share among us. You know what I mean? It was, we were all kind of grown up with the same, we don't talk about race. We don't really know anything about our cultures or anything like that. It just was never a thing for us. So for me, it didn't really help. It wasn't really until I actually like met other, um, not even just black people, but other people of color outside of the family that I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not the only person that's dealing with this kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, so how did 
not seeing any other people of color really besides outside of your family how did that influence your development of like your identity and who you were in this world and the woman you are yeah for me um growing up it was really hard to find an identity not just racially but also because i was adopted and at such a young age i didn't know anything about my biological family so for me it was really hard to really even like figure out what I want to do or like what aspirations I should have or just anything that was like felt like this is like me. I didn't have that probably until like college at all. Um, so it was just a lot of kind of just feeling kind of lost and I didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere. And even within my family, I never really felt like super connected with my siblings or my parents. It just always kind of felt like I was just there, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, so it really wasn't until I actually like started meeting other people of color and realizing that I'm not insane and I actually am like these things that I'm experiencing are valid. I was like, oh, this is like, this has been happening for centuries. I'm not the only person. And then from there, I kind of started to learn more about like black history and all this kind of things. And that kind of led more to me developing my identity. I was like more validation in what I was feeling and it kind of helped me find my way um, to who I am now. Have you had conversations since with your um, family? Yeah. About yeah, that? I'm very, I'm very vocal now. <laughs> um, so it's, it's something that I'm not afraid to talk about whether or not people in my family want to talk about it. Um, it definitely started with my parents. My parents kind of went two separate directions. My dad kind of went the direction of like, I don't want to talk about this. And then my mom went in the more direction of like, I can acknowledge that I extremely fucked up <laughs> along the way and but like I'm here and I'm ready to listen and I'm ready to learn and she's been doing a lot more work in like educating herself and she's taking the initiative to like read and learn about the black experience and like what she can do because you know we're still here <laughs> we're still our kids and now you know like we have um, I have like a little niece that was just born a couple years ago so now there's a next generation of black kids that are coming up in the family so it's like this continues it's not something that just stops once your adoptees turn 18 and go off for themselves like this is the thing that keeps happening so you do have to keep it's a something that is like lifelong education it just it doesn't ever just stop so she's been a lot better at um about uh having these conversations so we talk about it all the time um and even with my siblings we're we're not super, super close, so we don't talk that much anyway, but we can still, like, when I'm back home and stuff, we still have these conversations. So I feel more comfortable about bringing these topics to the table, which I bring them regardless of how people feel about it now. <laughs> but yeah. um, but I definitely noticed over the past few years that they've there's definitely been more, like, actual conversations instead of just saying, oh, I don't want to talk about this because it makes me uncomfortable kind of thing. In general, how do you feel about white people adopting children of color? Um, it's a very mixed feeling for me. I think that it's something that's going to happen regardless, just due to the numbers um, of families that are able to adopt and the children that are available to adopt are primarily children of color. So just um, statistically, it's going to happen. Um, so for me, the issue isn't so much not having white people adopt transracially, it's more making sure that there's the education and um, more emphasis on like requiring like a cultural competency and racial education and that kind of stuff to these families 
um, instead of just saying, oh, well, you just can't adopt. Well, that doesn't solve the problem, right? Because <laughs> there's still kids that need to be adopted and need families and everything. So um, instead of just saying they don't have white people adopt, we just need to supply more um, education and like requirements and stuff to make sure that they're going into a home that is actually prepared to raise a child of color and not just do the whole like, oh, I'm colorblind and we just, you know, raise you all in love. That's great, but that's not realistic. <laughs> for children of color. Yeah, and I think that a lot of white people typically come from the colorblind being their kind of like authentic lens of um, of good intention. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, so yeah. So what would those, what would those key areas of education be? Um, so in my opinion, I think one of the basic things that we need to tackle is understanding what racism is because there's this still very general term that just racism and just being mean to somebody <laughs> who is a different color than you. And it's a lot more complicated than that. So I think it needs to, it really just needs to go back to like the absolute step one of like, this is what racism is. This is how it works in this country, the systematic um, issues of it and understanding your privilege because you can't really tackle racism if you don't understand what areas you have privilege in and how you're contributing to it um, and then understanding more about what uh, the adoptees are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis um, it's yeah I think it's just hard to kind of a lot of the programs today are really focused on like just get get kids in homes and that's like that's the goal and it's not a lot about understanding like this is what adoptees are actually doing with this or how you can actually help them navigate through these things um so i think there needs to be a lot more focus on the actual adoptees and i would love a lot more involvement of adoptees in creating these programs because most of them do not ever consult adoptees on these things it's just a lot of people who have read books or went to school for whatever but it's like that's not realistic because you have to have take into account like the people who this is actually affecting you know um so they I, there's a lot of like we talk to birth parents or we talk to the adoptive parents but then it's like why aren't you guys talking to the adoptees <laughs> like we're a part of this triad too but we're usually the ones that are always left out which is very strange to me but i think there needs to be a lot more of involving the adoptees in these programs and actually figuring out a better education system yeah and you know i it's kind of a bummer that I don't know this, but I wonder, you know, if you go through a private adoption agency and you're adopting a child from birth, I'm guessing yours was a private adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if now, if they know that, you know, cause like foster care, you're going to go get a license to be a foster care, but you, it's not necessary that you're going to get any particular race. Right. So right. I could see them saying, okay, we're just going to give you the basic training and it is what it is. But I wonder if now, if it's like specifically you're going to adopt a child that's of another race through private adoption or um, international adoption either, even if there is that cultural um, education. And just, you know, what you're talking about, we, we've, I've seen an uptick in implicit bias training across a lot of different industries. And I'm really loving that simply because I feel like racism, just saying the word racism, like people are like, I'm not racist, like, because there's such a negative connotation with, as there should be, with racism. Right. But 
if part of the process of healing is acknowledging your implicit bias and not acknowledging the racism that lives inside of you because of whatever you were taught and how you're raised and what, all that stuff, then to have that like knee jerk defensive reaction doesn't let you get there. Right. So the implicit bias trainings that I've seen have been really nice in this, like, this is how we create our biases, like no fault on you for creating them. It's now your responsibility to acknowledge them and work against what you've learned. And I, I, I agree with you that if that was in every adoption and foster care training, that that would be a good start. Yeah, just, yeah, it wouldn't solve everything. I think it would be a good start to to fixing the issue because um, I think a lot of it like when I asked my mom I was like did they like require you to do any kind of like cultural training she was like no they just asked a question that was like do you promise to like love and take care of this child regardless of their race color creed that kind of thing and that was that was that was it that was like the extent of like we're, you're adopting a child of color, like this is all the, the acknowledgement we're going to give you, or tools. Um, I think that's a lot of the issues, there's just not enough tools that are given to white people who haven't tackled racism and privilege, um, so they don't even know where to start, you know? So we need to provide them with those tools um, so that they can more appropriately and um, effectively raise children of color in their household that feel like safe and loved and that that whole like colorblindness is just not it doesn't cut it because regardless of what the love that you're pouring into us that's great but like we're still living in the world as people of color so we can still be getting all the love and support and whatever at home but we would go out in the world I'm still viewed as a black woman I'm still treated as a black woman I still deal with racism literally anytime I step outside the door so we're still dealing with this, but then we go home and it's just like, oh, everything's just great and rainbows and <laughs> flowers, <laughs> fields of flowers. And it's like, I'm getting two completely different messages here and nobody's listening to me. So what do I do? It's just like, we're caught in this, like, my family doesn't really understand and the world is treating me like crap. So what do I do? <laughs> and even if it's different from your reality, part of love is exploring and understanding your child's reality too yeah. so at least acknowledging like okay i might not see what you see but tell me about it and let's go learn about it together i mean you don't have to have all the answers as a parent we know that parents don't have all the answers but right. you can access those so what what could your parents have done to provide representation? I mean, it seems like it was a pretty, there was slim pickings as far as being yeah. able to <laughs> give you an environment that really would have been um, meaningful. So what do you think a family that's in a super white area can do as far as representation? Um, I think today we're very lucky to have the internet. <laughs> because um, there's a lot of resources online whereas when I was growing up in the early 90s there was not <laughs> um, and on top of that like again we were homeschooled we didn't really have like cable or anything so there really was not I didn't grow up watching like black families on TV or anything like that um, I think the first time I actually had like a representation in the house was um, I got the American Girl doll Addie for my, I think it was my 12th birthday. And that was the first time I like, was like, 
oh wow, there's like there's like some representation of black people. And she came with like um, I don't remember if you guys remember all those, but it came with like the whole book set and like the sticker book and it was like this whole history of her family. I was I was mind blown. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so that was like the first time, and I was so excited to have it. So I feel like if I had more things of that in the home, and it really honestly can be like little things like from dolls to photos or just art or just more like um, one of the things I talk about a lot is just normalizing having conversations about race in the family. Um, like, for example, we never celebrated like Black History Month or like Martin Luther King Day, like anything. It just wasn't even acknowledged, like just little things like that, that normalize the fact that we are now a multiracial family and not just a white family. Like when mm -hmm. you adopt children of color into your family, you have to adjust from just being a white family to now being um, a family that has multiple races and multiple cultures. So now you have to find a way to incorporate all of those cultures um, and feel like, make children feel like they're supported in those cultures and they feel like they're not weird or crazy for like having different interests or wanting to connect more with the cultures. So just making it feel normalized um, to have those conversations and everything around race because I feel like a lot of people like tiptoe around race because they still feel like it's like this scary subject but it's really not like it's really not scary at all if you just normalize like this conversation that hey people are different that's cool like we're all human beings but some of us look different some of us act different some of us have different personalities it's really just it's not that difficult if people just have those conversations. So yeah, I think it just goes back to finding ways to incorporate whatever culture that your child is from into the home, just very normally, casually, and not make them feel like it's like this alienating thing. Like, hey guys, we're all now gonna focus on Martin Luther King Day, like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's that's good stuff. When I was a case manager in Vermont, there was one uh, girl that lived like on a farm. She liked horses. She had her adopted family was all white. And we were like overly trying to bring her culture into like, you know, just make her feel like whatever she wanted to do that was related to her culture was fine and that we would like drive forever for her to get her hair done, all this stuff. We made all this effort and she is still like, I like liked my hair the way it was and I really <laughs> like being out with the cows. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, like, okay, so not only being culturally sensitive and open to it, but like maybe have a conversation too about right. <laughs> <laughs> is this something you want to go do rather than like we've got a treat cooked up for you. We're going to bring right. you to like a diverse hair salon. So I know too that like we, we've talked about on this podcast, like if you're a white mom or you have a, a, any child that is of a different ethnicity or race, that it's helpful for you to go find a support group of other moms yeah. um, that raise children of no, those races and ethnicities so that they can support you. So I know it can be scary reaching out to um, a group of people that you don't feel affiliated with and saying like, hey, I have a white baby or I have a black baby now. And like, there's some questions I have that I'd love to talk to a black mom about. Would you be open to that? Like, so um, I, it feels awkward 
Um, but I feel like those are the conversations we have to have. And even if we get like knocked down or we do get some initial judgment that we just have to like keep trying mm -hmm. um, until we are received because we kind of like, we owe it to our kids to, to create those communities. Yeah. Absolutely. But in your experience, do you think that people are receptive to like lending guidance to people of other races to help them raise their kids? I would say generally, yes. I do think you kind of have to be careful in how you approach that because you can very much kind of cross that line and just be like, please educate me because I'm this white person that's raising a, a black child and you, I need help, that kind of thing. Um, and it's like, again, like we're not, responsible for educating you but i do think mm -hmm. if you go to specific like spaces where that is welcome like don't just walk into like the black student union be like hey guys like you know what i mean <laughs> but like find communities where that's welcome or um like again we have the internet now like there's so many facebook groups there's so many like forums and stuff that's dedicated to this kind of stuff um, or you can do things like, like what my mom did when um, she was trying to figure out how to do my hair. She ended up driving like an hour and a half to Seattle because at the time that was the only place that had black hair salons. And she brought me up there to get my hair done. And she just asked the woman like, are you, can I ask you questions about how to take care of her hair because I want to do it right. And that's how she learned how to take care of my hair. Um, and the woman was fine with that, but she, you know, she asked first before she was like, hey, teach me everything there is to know about black hair. Like, you know what I mean? But I also think it made a difference because that was this woman's specialty, right? She went to an actual professional who that is what she does. And she didn't just walk up to some random black person and was like, hey, can I ask you questions about black hair? <laughs> you know? Um, so I think it, you really have to like be smart in how you approach pe people of color and ask them to educate you. There's appropriate spaces, there's appropriate times to do it. and I think it would be better to seek out um, spaces where that's welcome or um, seek out like professional people who are actually like doing the thing that you're trying to find help for. Generally, I feel like that's where you will get the better responses versus just like, I have a black friend and maybe I should go ask them all the questions about being black. Cause that's exhausting. It really honestly is so exhausting. I don't think people understand how exhausting it is to have white people asking you all the time what your black experience is and asking to educate them on everything. Like it's exhausting. We already got to be black and now we got to explain to you how to be black. Like it's just, it's exhausting. <laughs> That's a really, really good point. Um, you know, we have our ways of like pendulum swinging, like, okay, so now we're, now we're supposed to be listening and asking questions. So like, that means <laughs> that we're going to like stop everybody we see and ask them. So it's a very good point that you raised that like seek out those safe places and maybe even ask like your other foster care groups. Mm -hmm. There's obviously foster care and adoption groups are understand transracial adoption or at least have people in them that do and can probably point you in directions of where you can find these support groups without being offensive um, and acting like somebody owes you anything. Right. Yeah. So um, we hear about this experience, uh, black children that are raised by white parents that are like sheltered by white privilege the whole time that they're in their home. And I guess they can get some benefits from that while they're in that home, but as it doesn't prepare them for being black in America, like as soon as they go to college or they go out into the world. 
And is that preparation really having those conversations? Yeah, I think it's super important to have those conversations. There's such a big, um, there's a big like chunk of our experiences that we miss out on when we're raised in a white family versus a family from our own culture. So for like example, if you were raised in a black family, you it would be very standard to have these conversations of like, this is how the world views you. This is how you have to react when a cop pulls you over because this is how they view you and they will kill you, those kinds of things. We don't get that kind of preparation. So we're thrown out into this world um, that hates us and we're not prepared how to navigate those things and or even that like we're viewed that way and um, there are some adoptees that even have like this issue of like I don't see myself as whatever race I am like black or whatever race that I am so I don't understand why other people are looking at me like this because they've been so sheltered or like I say they've been raised as white um, so they don't understand why the world is viewing them and treating them like this. So it's dangerous. Like it, it literally is our lives on the line. And I think that's something that people don't really understand. They think that we are kind of like dramatizing it and it's, and it's not, like it's a serious thing. It's really, truly our lives that are on the line when we're thrown out into the world, not prepared with the tools that we need to understand how racism works and how we are viewed or how we are treated. Like, for example, I remember going, applying for jobs when I um, was like, uh, I don't know, like 17, 18, something like that. And because my name is Rebecca, people assume that I'm white over the phone. So I remember applying for this job and it was like, oh yeah, great, fantastic, come in for the interview. I came in the interview, I had barely even walked in the door when the woman, she looked at me and I could tell in her face that she did not think that I was gonna be black. Um, and she immediately was like, oh, I'm so sorry, the position we actually just filled it with the last uh, person that came to interview. And I was like, did you? <laughs> like, it was just like, like those kinds of things or like just like that kind of things or just like realizing that like my natural hair is deemed as unprofessional and that I would be turned down for jobs for that kind of stuff. Like, those are things that I was never prepared for or and never even had a conversation about in my family. So it was things that I had to deal with on my own and again, it really wasn't until like college that I actually met other people of color that I was like, oh, I'm not the only person dealing with this. So before that, I was like, am I doing something wrong? Am I crazy? Do I need to change the way that I look or, you know, get my hair straightened, which I did. And of course, that doesn't solve anything because I'm still black. Um, but it was a lot of just like, I'm going crazy. I need to do something to change because people are treating me this way. And in reality, it's nothing to do with us. It's the way that the world has been conditioned to treat people that look like me. Um, but I didn't have that preparation or conversations or anything like that beforehand. That's so important. And I feel like it's really would be difficult for a white family to know, to have those conversations. I think that the more we get media, like good media coverage on um, implicit bias and just how the way the world works and what it means to be black in America and conversations we can have. I know I've seen like the commercials or whatever that are like about the talk um, recently. So it's coming a little bit more to the forefront, but there's so many nuanced experiences that you just talked about, mm -hmm. um, you know, like understanding that you were probably turned down for a job or, you know, a parent could possibly 
prepare a child for that, but how do, where's the line between like telling somebody reality, like being black means that you may have less opportunity and, and like not disheartening a child Mm -hmm. and wanting to be like, you can be everything that you want to be and screw those people. And you're beautiful inside and out and like raising the self-confidence while having like the prudent amount of caution. Um, I think you can do both. I think we are very complex people. I don't think we're as simple as just saying, if I learn that there's some, one thing negative going on, then it's just like everything's always going to be negative. I think that people uh, underestimate that children can actually handle these conversations. Um, obviously, you don't need to be telling like your two-year-old this or whatever. But on the same side, like my niece is four and she's already experiencing racism and she's already asked those questions. So it's like, um, at what point do you just, like you have to be real about it, right? You can't just keep saying that, oh, everything's great because we're already experiencing it. So we know that it's not great, right? So it's, to me, it's so important to have, for adoptees to feel like they have a support system at home. And when you don't have those conversations, when you aren't validating those experiences, um, we don't feel supported. Or I should say, I didn't feel supported. Um, I can only speak for myself. Because when I go to my parents and I say, this is what I am feeling, or this is, I got turned down for this job because I'm Black. And I'm met with, are you sure it's because you're Black? Or, you know, maybe it was something else, or maybe they really did just feel the position. And I'm like, no, and, you know, I feel like I'm not supported. And then at some point, I just I just stopped bringing it up with my family, right? Because I didn't feel like um, I was supported and I didn't trust them with these kind of conversations. So I knew from a very early age that I wasn't allowed to go to my family with these kind of um, topics to talk about. Um, but on the other hand, when I met other Black people and I started seeing like more positive Black role models and Black figures in media and things like that, I was like, oh, like Black people really can succeed, right? Regardless of all the stuff that's stacked against us. Yes, we're going to hit roadblocks along the way, but we can overcome and we can still do great. Um, So I think it's important to have both of those conversations that yes, things are going to be hard for you. It's just the way that the world is. It's unfortunate. Um, The problem is not you, it's the rest of the world. Um, But regardless of that, you can still strive to be the best that you ever want to be in whatever world that you want to take. And that kind of goes back to why um, representation is so important. Um, Seeing people like Michelle Obama, like I would have never, ever, ever thought that there would have been a Black president and first lady. Like it just never would have crossed my mind. So seeing like somebody like that, being able to like defy all the odds and again, like reading her book, like it was not an easy road (laughs) for her at all, but she was able to do that. So I think it's just really important to have those conversations together, but I don't think it's, it's not something as simple as just like, oh, we're going to tell you that like things are going to be hard, but like you can't also succeed and be a great person despite of that, because that's just not true. So uh, what do you think about people that have white kids and black kids and they treat their black kids differently based on the world and the example that i'm thinking of is a guest that we had on um but she was like i don't want my black kids just walking this street that we live on because i'm afraid that like they're gonna have an interaction with the cops or they're gonna Mm -hmm. or she's like postponing 
her, one of her sons or her son getting his permit because she doesn't want him driving. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and then I'm like, oh, that feels awful. Like you you can't afford them the same opportunities that your white kids get, and that feels like racist in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and she's like, well, it's the reality. Like it's the reality of um, she was like, black moms are just having these conversations and and making these decisions all the time anyway, but they just, they don't have a white kid there to like compare it to. Um, so I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I get that it's real. I just didn't know how I felt about it. Yeah, I think um, you do have to adjust, I think, depending on if you have a multi-racial family, you just do. We are different, we're treated different, um, just as if you were going to raise a child that needed a different, um, set of like special needs or anything like that, you have to you have to tailor your parenting to what that child needs. And your children of color, they need other things that your white kids will not need. So I don't think it's really necessarily racist to do that. It does become questionable when you start denying them opportunities that you would deny your white kids. Um, but I would say that like, because a lot of people do think like the whole like, we're not just treating all the kids the same so that kind of thing like isn't that racist in itself like no like you're tailoring um your parenting to what your child needs that's just what mm -hmm. it is um yeah I, I would say it does become questionable when you start saying like oh you can't drive or oh you can't do this because that isn't the problem right us driving is not the reason why we're being killed the problem is the police the problem is the system. So rather than saying you're black, so you simply cannot drive, because that puts the blame on the black person. Um, rather than that, have a conversation like when you drive, this is how you may be perceived by police. When you're pulled over, these are the actions that need to be done because you are black. Those conversations you won't necessarily need to have with your white kids, but you will need to have them with your black children because that's just reality. And it may or may not save their lives down the line, you know? Um, and on the same uh, same line, I think it's also important to include your white kids in these conversations. I don't think mm -hmm. it needs to be like a, we're only talking to the black kids and we're only talking to the white kids. If you're involving the whole family in these conversations, I think it's really important because they can watch out for each other. They also know what to expect when they're out with their their black siblings. Like they're, it's, it's, it's a whole family thing, right? It's not just like mm -hmm. a, um, again, just normalizing these conversations in the family. It's not just like a we're separating you as the black kid in the family. Like this is we're all family. We're all in this together. We all need to be on the same page of how this this world views these people in our family because we're all there to protect them and to ride for them. So I think it's important to include everybody in those conversations. I love that. So what led you to create your only black girl blog? Um, actually, my mom gave me the, I guess, kind of the inspiration too. I've always been better at writing my feelings and talking about them. Um, so even when I was little, if I was really angry or anything, I would never like just talk about it. So she would always tell me to go write. <laughs> She'd always say, just write a letter about how you're feeling. I don't have to read it. You don't have to give it to me, but I, you need to get this out. So that is kind of how I've always processed things. And so um, she's always just been very encouraging of me to to write, write what I'm feeling, write what I'm doing. So I think it was about, about my early years of college that I finally just, I started on Tumblr and I just honestly was just ranting <laughs> a lot of just 
just ranting about my experience of growing up the only black person in um, Olympia at the time. Um, and to my surprise, like there were a lot of people that um, could relate to it. And for me, it was wild because again, like growing up, I did not realize that there were like actually other transracial adoptees. So for me, I thought it was just gonna be like, just me talking to myself on the internet. <laughs> but I actually, I got a lot of followers in just a short amount of time. And I realized that people actually wanted to hear um, what I had to say. And a lot of other adoptees like reached out to me like, wow, I thought I was the only person dealing with this. So like hearing your story and realizing that like, there are other people going through this kind of thing. It really helped me a lot. So like hearing those kind of messages really um, just inspired me to keep going with my blog and kind of make it bigger to where it is to now. Um, I wanna like my, my focus with it is to provide more of a voice to the adoptees to be able to tell our story and have people listen to our experiences and learn through, through those kind of channels instead of just like the systematic things that are just based on like adoptive parents or birth parents, that kind of thing, like filling that that void where it's like, there's not a lot of adoptee voices. So I, that to me was really important to start uplifting the adoptee voices. Yeah, have you sought out any opportunities to like develop the curriculum or co-develop with like adoption agencies or whatever so that, or just create it yourself? so that you know it's something that you can offer and say listen i've done it for you this needs to be offered mm -hmm. of course you you sell it so you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be free but um i have a i have a workshop series that i've developed um that's basically just focused on the transracial experience so i cover what i was talking about before like the base like what is racism what is privilege and then talking about the transracial experience and then how to bring the whole like a multicultural family together um that's kind of like my four like big picture points that i feel like are like the kind of basic things that people need to cover so i do have that workshop that i've developed um, and that's something that people can book with me um, i am working on trying to do more stuff that's a little bit more tangible like whether it's workbooks or something like that because um, i can't be everywhere at once so um, if there are other people who would love to work with me, I would love to do that. Um, as far as like coming up with curriculums or even just like consulting and stuff like that, I would love to do that. Um, that's just, for me, my, my brain is more like creative, creative works. So I like to do a lot more in-person teaching. Um, that's mm. just kind of how I, how I operate. I just do a lot better that way, but yeah. Totally. Oh, I love that. So we ask everyone that comes on, I always say we, I, <laughs> I ask everyone that comes on the podcast this, but do you have a, an opinion on what we can do to help end the foster care crisis with so many kids that need, need home? I don't know. I think there's always going to be a need for foster care and adoption. So I think it kind of goes back to creating a system that's more focused on the actual like long-term well-being of the adoptees and foster kids um so again going back to like the education and even just like more emphasis on not just these are our placement numbers for the year but actually like is this an actual home where they're going to be safe and feel comfortable long term and we're not just gonna like return to sender which i know a lot of adoptees that has happened to where it's just like, oh, we thought this was going to be great and they're actually a little difficult, so I don't want to be here, like that kind of stuff. Like there needs to be a lot more. I really feel like we need to like dismantle the whole foster and adoption system and just rebuild it from the ground up 
with a lot more of like the adoptees well-being um, being the main focus instead of just like placement numbers and yeah just getting as many people placed as possible because it's not really good for anybody the both the parents and the adoptees is just not great to just like throw kids out there and just hope that they're in a home that might be okay like yeah it needs to be a lot more focused on the well-being of the kids long term so what do you feel about like private adoptions that cost like thirty thousand dollars and does it feel a little weird yeah it really does um i know there's a lot of comparison to like human trafficking um and it's hard to say that it's not the same because <laughs> it i mean it really is very much like you're buying a child um, but then you also run into things where that prohibits a lot of people that could actually take in kids from not being able to because they can't pay these ridiculous fees up front and really for what, you know. Um, so again, like if we made it more accessible to people who are open and willing and have the ability to take in more foster kids or adoptees, um, we would potentially not necessarily eliminate, but at least lower the numbers of kids that are still sitting out here waiting to find homes because we've eliminated this like classist system that's set up right now. That's like only people who make this much matter, even like even still like same sex couples are still very much discriminated against and not being able to adopt and stuff like that. So like, I just feel like the whole system just needs a complete, complete rehaul and just like built again from the ground up with some, a lot more, um, realistic expectations and laws and rules in place that actually protect the adoptees and foster kids. Did you ever look for or find your bio mom? Yeah, I found her. I started looking for her in 2016, 15, something like that. Um, but yeah, I have reconnected with her. I haven't gone down in person yet. I was, again, supposed to do that this year, but Corona. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we have reconnected and we talk. Um, pretty regularly on the phone and through Facebook, but that was another, um, quite a journey for me because um, the agency that she went through on her end um, ended up being shut down by the FBI. And then, um, so I ran into a lot of dead ends there. And then when I did finally get in contact with her, apparently they had told her that I died. So she thought I was dead this whole time. So she didn't look for me. So it was just like this whole, it was a lot. <laughs> It was a lot. And then, um, of course, for her too, like she thought somebody was playing a prank on her when I contacted her because oh. she had been told all this time that I had died like a year after okay. I was adopted, which is insane to me. I don't know why they would have done that. But yeah. But yeah, long story short, we have reconnected. I have um, five siblings, biological siblings. So I'm, I'm really excited to go down there and meet them. And so hopefully, whenever Corona. Oh my gosh, so she has contact with those siblings? Yeah, so she has contact with um, all of my siblings. I was the only one who was adopted out. Um, so I still, but I've also, I've talked to them on the phone and stuff. And it was really cool because oh, I wasn't, yeah. it was really cool to know that I wasn't like a secret or anything. So like all of them knew about me and her whole family knows about me and that kind of stuff. So they're really excited to to talk to me and everything. I, I was fully expecting to be like, I never told anybody, but no, she had, everybody knew about me. So it was really cool to, to kind of reconnect with everybody who's like, oh my God, we've been, <laughs> we think about you all the time and we're so super excited to meet you. And I wanted a big sister and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was really cool. Oh, that makes me so happy for you. I know there's so many kids on my caseload that wanted to find their birth parents. And I was so like, some of them I knew 
where their birth parents were at. And I was like, this is going to be this, this is going to be really disappointing, yeah. you know? Um, and so I'm happy for you. Uh, but even regardless, a lot of the kids, like it didn't matter if it was super disappointing, like there was a missing puzzle piece, like they needed, yeah. they needed to see it. Well, cool. This has been like super insightful, I think. And thank you for doing this. Where can people follow you and uh, where can they support your important work? Uh, yeah, so my blog is onlyblackgirl.com and I'm pretty much only black girl on all social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, so you can read my blog and I'm pretty active on Instagram and Facebook, mostly with uh, my posts all the time. So yeah, you can find me there. Only black girl on pretty much everything. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. I am so happy that Rebecca took the time to share her experience and educate us. You know, I think she made a great, great point because before this, I was thinking, yeah, you should, you know, reach out to anyone and ask questions and listen, but you really need to make sure that you're in a place that welcomes that. And you really need to make sure that you're not being offensive. Like you're not expecting somebody to educate you on something. Um, they don't owe you anything. And just because somebody has the education or knowledge that you need to get doesn't mean that they need to give it to you especially not not for free or on your schedule so make sure that you're going to the appropriate places places that are designated to kind of help you learn these situations we learned once again that representation totally matters but we do know that these communities exist where it's just predominantly white and it doesn't mean that you can't have a child from a different race in your area that's predominantly white, but make an effort to have those conversations, to honor heritage, to honor ethnicity, to honor cultures, um, to get dolls that look like your children, to have them watch TV shows that have people that look like them on them, um, read publications, honor holidays. All of those things are bringing the representation of their culture into their home. And then uh, Rebecca made the great point that in your home's not enough, especially if you're always in your home and you're homeschooled and your home is the only place that kind of looks different than the rest of society, you need to have representation in your community as well. So as much as you can do to seek out those spots of community that have uh, people that look like your children and cultures that celebrate your children's heritage. It's really important. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Make sure to go follow Rebecca on all the social medias at only black girl. And I will see you guys next week.